Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 318th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most eccentric, fearless, admired, and influential talents of the last half century, Terry Gilliam. More than a half century ago, Gilliam became the only American member of Monty Python, which the New York Times has called, quote, the troupe that threw the rules of sketch comedy out the window and made television safe for absurdity, close quote, and which The Guardian has labeled, quote, the most influential comedy group in the entire history of the world, close quote. He eventually became a major filmmaker as well, described by Salman Rushdie as, quote, one of the few really spectacular original talents in the cinema nowadays, close quote, and by the New York Times as, quote, a wily inventor who also serves as an analyst and evangelist of the imagination, close quote, and whose works represent, quote, an out-of-bounds visual imagination, a tendency to spiral wildly off-topic, and a fractious wit, close quote. All of the above have been on display in films such as 1975's landmark classic Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which Gilliam co-directed with Terry Jones, 1977's Jabberwocky, his solo directorial debut, 1981's Time Bandits, which J.K. Rowling has said partially inspired her Harry Potter books, 1985's Brazil, for which he received a Best Original Screenplay Oscar nomination, 1991's The Fisher King, for which he received a Best Director Golden Globe nomination, 1995's Twelve Monkeys, for which Brad Pitt received an Acting Oscar nomination, 2009's The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, best known as Heath Ledger's partially completed final film, and, most recently, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, a project with which Gilliam infamously grappled for nearly 30 years before finally getting it made with Adam Driver as its star. It premiered at the 2018 Cannes Film Festival, hit select U.S. theaters in 2019, and is now streamable for free on Crackle and for a fee on Amazon Prime, YouTube, Google Play, and Vudu. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 79-year-old, who has been recognized with three special BAFTA awards, one in 1969 for the graphics and animations in Monty Python's Flying Circus, another in 1988 for Monty Python's Outstanding British Contribution to Cinema, and another in 2009 recognizing Lifetime Achievement, opened up about how he wound up doing comedy in the first place with a bunch of crazy Brits. What led him to walk away from Monty Python and shift his focus to directing films on his own? Why, throughout much of his career as a director, he kept returning to The Man Who Killed Don Quixote and why it took so long to come together, why he feels imagination is so important and revisits it in so many of his films, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's great no, to it's great. have you. We always begin on this podcast with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Well, I was born and raised in the countryside outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. My dad was a carpenter. My mother was a virgin. And I, I don't know why I got this Messiah complex, but yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and now what really surprised me in, in prepping for this, I had no idea that religion had been such a big part of your childhood to the extent that you were on track to be a missionary at one point. Yep. I went through... University Occidental College uh, on a Presbyterian scholarship. And I was, my plan was to be a missionary. I thought, well, I've, you know, I'm blessed because 
I had good parents. I got well educated, and I thought my job was to go out and do good yeah. in the world. Yeah, yeah. So what? Uh, <laughs> where did I, it go wrong? Where did it go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds though like you know people should you know often we we talk to artists who have these tortured childhoods and everything. It sounds like you were pretty happy, pretty popular. So where does the subversive shriek come from? I don't know, because I used to say I was really abused as a child. My parents loved me. They supported <laughs> me. I wanted to be an artist, and an artist has to suffer. Right. So I think there was something in me that, having had this really easy ride okay. through high school and college and everything, I went out and made my life difficult yes. for myself. <laughs> <laughs> You've made up for it, yes. So um, I guess one of the things that might have it sounds like it certainly did shape you a lot in your early years, was Mad Magazine. Why was that so important to you growing well, up? Well, to be more precise, it's Mad Comics. Mad with, Comics, And yes. Mad Comics was Harvey Kurtzman and the greatest collection of cartoonists the world had ever seen. And Mad, it was so funny because they were parodying things. They were very clever. They were political even. And yet by using comic strips or television programs or films and playing with those tropes and surprising us, making us laugh at the absurdity. And in a sense, Harvey Kurtzman always had a problem with authority. And so he taught me to have a problem <laughs> with authority as well. And in fact, when you went off to Occidental, I know that you had to have your you know, official major, I think I read was political science. But in fact, how are you spending a lot of your time? Wasn't it sort of imitating? I, well, I was, yes, I was using the, I was imitating Joseph Goebbels, let's be honest <laughs> about it, because uh, I was head cheerleader. And also a group of us took over the arts magazine, the literary magazine, and turned it into a humor magazine. And we just played the audience that was the school when we ran one of one of my friends as uh, for student body president and ran a huge campaign, the biggest one, yeah. and we were just taking the piss out of <laughs> student politics. And yeah. you just discovered, because we did a thing in our, for the freshmen, it was in my senior year, and there was a great Greek amphitheater up in Occidental, and we created a whole kind of Nuremberg rally for the freshmen to inculcate the um, history, the whole background and, uh, of, of the, the, the university. They were all lies. Everything we said was a lie. But the weird thing is, not only did the freshmen buy into yeah. the lies, but by the end of that year, the seniors had already had also bought into the lies. And it was one of those shocking moments that, you know, if Goebbels had had a sense of humor, it yes. would have been all very That's... different. We had the sense of humor. But the big lie is so dangerous. And now, after all those years, I've come back to America, yeah. where the lie is constant yeah, from the mouth over. of the orange man. That's right. That's right. Well, to come back to Kurtzman for a moment. So you're doing your own magazine while in, in college, but also, I guess, like most college students thinking, what do I do next? And my sense was that the ultimate dream would be, can I go to work for Kurtzman? So what did you say to him and what did he say back to you? Well, while we were doing the magazine, while we were still in university, we were communicating and he was sending really nice comments about what we were doing. So graduating with no idea, I had no plan. I had nothing. And I wrote him saying, oh, I'd like to come to New York. And he said, don't bother. There's no work. There's nothing here. And I 
when somebody advises me not to do something, <laughs> I came to New York. And it just happened that his assistant editor, his number two, was quitting. I walked into the job. Right, literally. Literally. Unbelievable. Literally, wearing only California clothes. And the winter <laughs> then took off in New York and I froze to death. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So now suddenly you are working with, surrounded by your heroes, because yeah. um, this was now at help, right? This is yeah, yeah. no longer mad, but it's the same brain same, trust, right? Same team of people, yeah. yeah, basically. So why then, not that long after, did you decide, I'm going to Europe? The magazine failed. Okay, that's a good reason. <laughs> and suddenly I was out of a job. Right. And so... And the Vietnam War was going full blast. I had joined the National Guard, and I decided I wanted to escape America. I wanted to go to Europe. And so I sent a letter to the um, military, to the Army, mm -hmm. saying that I was being transferred to Help Magazine's European office. <laughs> and, and off I went. I hitchhiked around Europe for four months. Yeah. And I ended up in Rhodes, on the Isle of Rhodes, where my ex-roommate was now living. And I then decided that's where I was living, right. even though I returned to America. But the Army didn't know that. Yes. So they kept communicating <laughs> to me via the Isle of Rhodes. <laughs> well, so somebody who I believe you met in New York, but then re-enters the picture in London is John Cleese. Why did you guys first meet in New York? What was he well, doing? In Help Magazine, we did these fumetti, which are a lot of romance magazines, especially in Italy, Latin America, do them. They're like comic books, except yeah. they're photographs of real people right. doing things. Right. But it's the same idea. You speak with balloons, which are the fumetti, the little puffs of smoke. And... And we did these, and I was always looking for actors who would work for $15 a day. And I bumped into this group of English comedians who were in New York in a little theater in the village, and they were there kind of trying to following on from um, beyond the fringe. Yeah. Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, uh, Jonathan Miller, and um, Alan Bennett. Okay. And... They hadn't been successful, like, uh, beyond the fringe, so they're playing this little theater. But there was John Cleese, there was Graham Chapman. And John, as always, stands out from a crowd. I got him to be in the Fumetti, which turned out to be very prescient because it was about a man who falls in love with his daughter's Barbie doll. Actually consummates the relationship. <laughs> I don't know how. We didn't show that part. But John... Subsequently, we became good friends doing that, and uh, I eventually, after traveling around Europe, I came back to America, and um, then I decided to go to England, yeah. and, and John was by then very successful on television. And, uh, and when you were now arriving in England, what were some of the jobs that you had before you and John and your now mutual friends started to do things together? You had some... Uh, yeah. Jobs, right? Well, basically, when I got there, uh, my girlfriend was, she got this job as an editor of a weekly magazine. Mm -hmm. And I was the art director of the magazine. I was also doing illustrations and cartoons for various magazines in Europe and in America. So I was making a living, but I was more and more tired of uh, 
being stuck, which is a pen and paper. <laughs> and, and I got a hold of John and said, can you introduce me to uh, somebody in television? With the goal of doing what, though? Were you now looking to, it would still be animation or drawing or no, it would be? This uh, was before animation entered my life. I was oh still just a cartoonist. Right. Um, but I made contact with this one producer who was producing a children's comedy show. Mm -hmm. Uh, written and starring Mike Palin, Terry Jones, and Eric Idle, amongst a couple others. And I managed to sell him uh, some written sketches, and he forced them on those others. And this was called Do Not Adjust Your Set? Or this was so, so now, do you remember, I've, I've read about something at a Teddington Studios where you guys all first really crossed paths. Obviously, you and John had known each other going into that, but... What do you remember? I, there was something about a, a flamboyant coat. Yes. <laughs> I had been traveling around Europe with this great big sheepskin coat, which I then painted. <laughs> uh, and so I guess because I painted rather yeah. nicely. Yeah. And I arrived to the studio and Eric Idle jumped out because Eric has always had an eye for the exotic and the new <laughs> and the fashionable. And I apparently with my long hair and my incredible coat, attracted his attention. So we became buddies. What I do remember at that first meeting was in the distance in the dark corner with these two little guys hunkered down there, territorial people, Mike Palin and Terry Jones, <laughs> looking very rodental. What is he doing here? Somebody's coming into our world. <laughs> this is going on. Anyway, I was accepted by Eric and eventually the others. And one of the things that happened, I did a cartoon for it an animated cartoon because yes. I had never done it before but I knew the principles and so that meeting though that first one with the code at Teddington what was the reason you were there uh, sorry anyway. were they that was no because they had checking they had paid, you out well no I was there because I'd met this producer and he had bought these sketches from me these written sketches and so come on down it was it was that and yeah. uh and their, my sketches were forced upon them. And so they were, because they'd already basically been doing all the, yeah. uh, the what they were doing. And now the, the feeling of the producer was it would be good to, to have some animated uh, cutaways. Well, actually, it wasn't, it was stranger than that, because I don't think I did anything for this, that first series with, of Do Not Adjust mm -hmm. Your Set. But he, the producer, went on to do another show called uh, Wave Ways of Making You Laugh. And I was hired as a resident cartoonist. And I would sit there and do caricatures of the guests as they were coming on. And there was this one week where a man named Dick Vosper had recorded all of these terrible punning links from this DJ on, on radio. And they didn't know what to do with this material. And so I said, well, I'd like to make an animated film. And they just assumed I knew what I was doing, <laughs> which I didn't. But I And I had two weeks and 400 pounds to be oh, able to do it. Gosh. The only way I could do it was cutting out things and moving them around in this very crude way. Right. And nobody had ever seen that in England. Wow. So overnight, I became an animator. And did, did that must have even surprised you that this was now a big focus of yours. I mean, yeah. you had enjoyed prior to that drawing, but this is a long way from just drawing, right? I mean, it was like, at the time, it was just things were happening. I didn't think about what it meant yeah. long-term or short-term. Right. It was just I had something new to do. And it was the speed with which I was recognized as some unique, incredible artist that appeared from nowhere. It's amazing. I mean, I was looking, I think it was 
this must have been just shortly thereafter, once you guys got up and going with Monty Python's Flying Circus, in 1969, a BAFTA Special Award, not for the program, but for you specifically for the graphics and animation. So clearly you were a, you were standing out. Um, but I guess that obviously begs the question, how do we get from Do Not Adjust Your Set to Monty Python and the Flying Circus? Well, basically on this one program with which Eric Idle was involved, we were basically making you laugh. I had done this animation. So there was another series of, of Do Not Adjust Your Set. So I started doing more animation. So now we've got Eric... Mike and Terry and myself as a little gang. Yep. And John was offered, the BBC offered John a show. And he wanted to work with Mike Palin. And Mike said, well, I've got these three other friends. <laughs> and so he ended up with John and Graham, who had been writing together. And now the four of us came on. And there was his show on BBC. And they gave us, I think it was seven shows. And we sat I'm around and came up with a name. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you've you've said about the name, I, I read that, you know, the first people that uh, came to see it thought they're coming to see a, a circus, right? I mean, it's people had no... How long did it take before people started to get into this? I think it probably was about three or four shows. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning, they had, the audience had no idea what they were watching, except there was clearly some funny stuff in there. The BBC didn't know really what they had. I remember they actually pulled... I think it was the fourth show was pulled off the air to re be replaced by the International Horse Show of the Year. <laughs> now, what was interesting, that was a, in the, my wife, who loves horses, mm -hmm. was watching it. And in the middle of this uh, dressage event, they were playing this music. And it was the... It was the John Philip Sousa Liberty Bell, which was the Python theme. Right. It was like you couldn't get rid of Python <laughs> once it was allowed on the airwaves. <laughs> so you're primarily working on Flying Circus behind the scenes, doing the animation. But I, I mean, you would sometimes be in sketches. And I guess I just wonder, you know, for the generations that have come after and been, been equally as entranced by what you guys did. Can you pinpoint what made you guys so good? I don't really know, except everybody had been writing for television for a few years because, and they were all good. And I was doing what I was doing, which was deemed to be unique, new, all of these things. And it was basically six guys entertaining themselves. Yeah. <laughs> if we laughed at it, that was all. We didn't have managers. There were no producers who were saying, you must do this. You have to go for this audience. We just did what we thought was as funny as we could be. And it clicked. Well, now you're so you're the one American in the group. Yeah. Is there a difference between American humor and British humor? Because I know that you guys probably starting with, I guess, and now for something completely different in 71, which I think is just compilation of the first two seasons of Flying Circus. Here's your first film, and it didn't go over particularly well in America. And I don't think you guys were ever as anywhere near as popular in America. It's, you certainly have very passionate followers here. But is that because there's different senses of humor? I think there is. I think I, what I like about British humor, it's more self-deprecating. The British laugh themselves, not at others. Yes, Americans yes. are very good at laughing at others. <laughs> and, but the reality is the film uh, was, I believe, Columbia did the film. And it was, really was a compilation of the first two series. But they didn't understand it. And, in fact, they said if we put the twit of the year 
sequence in there, they wouldn't guarantee the success of the movie. Well, we put it in yeah, yeah. because it was funny. Yeah. And of course, they guaranteed the lack of success of the movie. <laughs> Columbia did. And, and they just sold it really badly. We in, in the States, I mean, in England, it was very popular, which was embarrassing because it was old material as yeah, far yeah, as right. we were concerned. <laughs> but it did lead to people in America getting wind of us, yes. which then eventually led to on NPR. Yes. And in fact, a lady named Nancy Lewis, who is the PR lady for Buddha Records, mm-hmm. she had spotted Python early on, loved it. And she contacted, eventually it was a man named Ron DeVillier in Dallas, who was an NPR station there. And interestingly enough, he was the main man in the studio was a guy named Bob Wilson, who was the father of Owen and Luke Wilson. Oh this is so God. bizarre. What a crazy thing. And anyway, Dallas, they did the, the leading for on getting it on television. Mm-hmm. They had to, I think, get 11 various stations together. And it went on. And boom, it took off really fast. I mean, I remember within a very short while, there were demonstrations, I think it was in Des Moines, Iowa. Mm-hmm. It was pulled off for some reason, <laughs> and they were, they were on the streets marching. <laughs> so we obviously touched a nerve yeah. in America that needed touching, yeah. clearly. Yeah. Now, you have said in, in a number of places that for you, the ultimate dream, even going back to when you're living in L.A. and sort of right in the backyard of the film industry, you wanted to be a filmmaker. Why was it you and Terry Jones as opposed to John and somebody else that got the chance to direct Monty Python and the Holy Grail? The others were smarter, (laughs) is how it worked. They knew that to direct the group was just a dog's body job. It's just a lot of work. And Terry and I had been moaning about the quality of the TV shows, the look of it, you know, da, da, da. we just knew we could do it better. And so we just suggested anybody named Terry <laughs> should be able to vote um, and uh, to, to direct. direct the film. Yeah. <laughs> and the others agreed, so we became the directors. And does it complicate things when suddenly people who theoretically are equals now some have to answer to the others? There was that, and especially my part of it, because just working with pieces of paper up to that moment, I wasn't particularly articulate in the use of the English language. And the others were very impatient. And and there's Terry and I directing together, which we began the process in complete agreement. Within a week or two, we were making two different films. It became more and more bizarre. We then chose to have the first assistant director be the common voice. <laughs> but then suddenly we realized he's making a third okay. kind of film. So Terry basically took over the verbal side right. of directing, and I took over the visual the side visual. of directing, wow, and it works. <laughs> uh, now, was it in, you guys were in Scotland for yep. some of this. Could you ever have imagined, you're in a little village there, that this thing that you guys are doing would have the impact and the life that it's had? I mean, what it, it, did it just seem like an expanded version of what you'd already been doing? Yeah, we were excited. We just knew we had a good script and the performances were always good. And that was it. We just 
were able to make a movie. The, the, our, the big failure is the money for the, the film was Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Elton John, several record companies, and we were supposed to be a tax loss for them. <laughs> <laughs> the film was a big success, made money, and completely buggered yeah, their right. tax planning up. <laughs> what does that remind? There was some other situation like that where it was supposed to be a write-off. I think I'd heard Marty even years earlier was a similar, but it's what a crazy thing where people didn't know what they had. So meanwhile, I guess as that was 75, within two years, you're now directing solo for the first time, Jabberwocky. And I know that you were not thrilled with the fact that the way it was sort of promoted in some circles was Monty Python's Jabberwocky when, in fact, this was your escape, right? That was my attempt of escape. <laughs> escape. I mean, I guess, you know, you still have Palin and Terry Jones in there, but were you already thinking beyond Monty Python? Yeah, because I felt, I mean, with Holy Grail, with Python, we were, it was comedy. That's all it was supposed to be. Romance, no. Action, adventure, no. It was comedy. That was the key to the whole thing. And I just thought I wanted to play in other areas. And that's how ridiculous naive I was then, that I thought I could make a medieval film with Michael Palin, Terry Jones, and myself involved, and it wouldn't be considered to be a Python film. (laughs) And of course, it was sold as a Python film. And well, where it really was successful in was in countries that had never seen Monty Python. Right, right, right. Because the reviews, of course, not as funny as Holy Grail. That's correct. I'm not arguing with that. It wasn't trying to be. Right. Well, now they get you back in for Life of Brian, which is in 79, and talk about really baiting controversy to go after organized religion is always going to have that effect. You chose, I guess, was it a decision not to direct this next one because it had been a little bit arduous with the first one? Yeah, and having done one on my own, I thought, I don't want to be a double-headed director. And Terry was there, and so I decided, I actually decided I'll just design the film. I will look after the visual side of it and not get involved in the day-to-day directing of the others who didn't want to wear uncomfortable costumes. (laughs) They didn't want to have beards. They were just ridiculous because with Jabberwocky, I suddenly was working with real actors and great actors, and they would do what I asked them to do, (laughs) unlike the Pythons. (laughs) Now, you then go and do Time Bandits, which I found very interesting to learn was was almost an accidental film because, in fact, it was sort of the fallback plan after you tried to pitch Brazil. I mean, suddenly having established yourself as a as an independent director separate from Python, now you want to do what you want to do, and it wasn't an easy sell ever, right, for Brazil. It was what was interesting is as a result of... Um, Monty Python's, um, what, what was our film called with Jesus in it? <laughs> oh, yeah, with Life of Brian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Life of Brian was basically the beginning of handmade films, which was George Harrison, who put up the money for Life of Brian. Right. And then we teamed up. So it was Python and a Beatle. And we had a, our own company. And George's manager became our manager. Now, it was him I was trying to get Brazil through, and I was having no No luck. No luck. (laughs) So I just went back one weekend and said, all right, I'm going to make a film about a kid. And then because I didn't think a kid could sustain the whole movie, let's surround him with people the same height, (laughs) dwarves. And off we went, and then I got Mike Palin involved, and we, we knocked out a script quite quickly. And Dennis liked 
that idea because he saw it as, oh, Snow White, Seven Dwarves, and what did George Harrison do? All his songs. It'll be a musical. That's not what I wanted to do. No, no. And in fact, you were imagining, I think, a trilogy, right, at one point. No, the trilogy came later. Once I had made Time Bandits, and then I had made Baron Munchausen in Brazil. Then I said it was the fourth part of a trilogy was the next one. I (laughs) I was doing some joke, but but they are. Was there not something, though, where a studio initially that was going to support this was opposed suddenly to, we love the idea, but no dwarves, right? (laughs) That actually came, yes, that actually was going on. This is... No dwarves. And I said, didn't you see Wizard of Oz? Yeah. Does anybody remember? And it became ridiculous because there was a, that actually came later, after the film was a big success, despite all their fears, because it was turned down by every studio. After we, the script was sent out, they didn't want to know about it. George Harrison guaranteed the financing. The finished film was turned down by every studio. We ended up with... a the smallest, the mini of the majors, which is Avco Embassy. Yeah, yeah. And they hadn't had a success in 10 years. <laughs> and that success had been The Graduate right, 10 years right, earlier. Right, right. But they had a machinery. And so basically George guaranteed the prints and advertising. And we went out and we went to number one and we sat there for weeks. And nobody say. could believe what yeah. was happening. And now suddenly there's more of a receptive audience for the idea of Brazil. Not exactly. No. <laughs> <laughs> what happened next was interesting because now I was an A-list director yeah. overnight. And I can't remember which studio. I think it might have been Fox. They had a film script called Enemy Mine. And this was their big one, their A-list film. And I was now an A-list director. So that's what we wanted to do. They offered it to me and I just didn't like the script. And they said, well, well, what do you really want to do then? And I said, I've got this other thing called Brazil. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the reason. And then I teamed up with Arnon Milshon, who was just starting out. He'd already done Once Upon a Time in America and King of Comedy. And we just ran around Cannes one year, and we managed to get 20th Century Fox and Universal bidding for it. So one had America, the rest had the world. <laughs> and suddenly we were off, and we made Brazil. Now, that in between Time Bandits, which is 81, and Brazil, which is 85, was the sort of winding down of Python with The Meaning of Life in 1983. You have, I think, joked that this was the first time you really took flack for going over budget because your animation, which opens the film, was, even though there wasn't necessarily a specified budget, it was getting expensive. But it was the last thing that you guys did together. There had been the Hollywood Bowl thing in 82, obviously a, a couple of partial reunion since, but it sounds like since Life of Brian moving towards the meaning of life, there had been some growing apart. And I just wonder if you can pinpoint what that was about. I'm not sure if there really was. We just didn't come up with what we thought was a good idea. I think everybody, yes, there's a point with a group when everybody wants to show the world that they as an individual, have some worth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that kind of was happening. We're pulling in different things. There have been other films. Eric had done some. Mike had done one. I wouldn't say the group was falling apart, but it just wasn't the same kind of chemistry. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, we managed to get a script that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I actually think it's maybe the sum of the parts is not as great as the individual parts of the film, but it has some of the best work we've ever done yes. in it. And... Out it went. And I 
I was getting tired of animation. I didn't want to be an animator anymore. And I'd written this thing, and the others thought, well, that's just an animated film. And I said, no, I'm, I want live action mm -hmm. stuff. And so I had my own little studio in, in the main studio. I had my own stage and my own crew. And, and nobody took it seriously, what I was doing. And what was interesting was that it ended up being the Crimson Permanent Assurance. And rather, like before I had worked with old people and dwarves. Now I went work with really old people <laughs> <laughs> and give them their moment to be right. heroic and piratical. Right. And we did it. And of course, it was longer than I had originally intended because it was just the way the story told. And the others said, you got to keep cutting it. You got to, it's too long. It won't work in the film. And they were right because it's a different rhythm than the rest of the film. And out of utter frustration because I had reached a point, I'm not going to cut any more out of this. Mm -hmm. So I said, we'll just remove it from the main film and it'll be a short yeah, preceding yeah, the movie. Yeah. And then later on, the short comes in and invades the movie. So we ended up with something even more yeah, interesting. Wacky, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like so much of what I've done and even the group is it's the result of things not going the way you wanted to right. make them. Right. So you're forced to come up with another solution, which is often better than yeah, our original idea accidents absolutely um all right so now brazil is finally coming together but i want to just establish that's a far out <laughs> idea of uh, for a movie and and to this day to watch it you know is a, is a mind trip my understanding was that prior to becoming part of python you'd had a few nine to five sort of jobs where you were not happy in them and it, it, you could see what it it would do to you maybe over the course of a lifetime to be dealing with bureaucracy and all yeah. of that nonsense. So I've heard that that was an inspiration, but that also something, an image sort of came to you while you were way back with Jabberwocky. So what was the actual impetus for Brazil? That's hard to even remember, but it was <laughs> a lot of frustration. It was about several things. It was also somebody in a bureaucracy and somebody who chooses not to take responsibility, to avoid responsibility. And the Peter Principle, does that still apply? Do people understand it? Where the Peter Principle was the idea that people get promoted to a position within a corporation where they're no good. Yeah. So they're, there they're stuck at that level of being no good. So corporations are run by the majority of people not being good at the job they're doing. So that intrigued me. I was at the same time reading about witch hunts in the Middle Ages. And then I was very aware of terrorism that was going on the bottom Meinhof group in Germany, the Red Brigade in Italy. And, and I started real, realizing that in South America, people were being arrested, put in prison and having to pay for their time in prison, which was exactly what was happening during the witch hunt trials in the 16th mm -hmm. century. And it's all is just spinning around in my head. And uh, I sat down with, with Chuck Alverson, who had co-wrote Jabberwocker with me, and we worked on it for a bit, and that didn't go anywhere. In the end, I had about 94, 98 pages of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was a story, and it reached a stop, and I got involved with Arnon Milshon, and he said, well, have you ever thought of another writer? And somebody said, Tom Stoppard. Mm -hmm. Tom, a genius with, with words, and me pretty good with pictures. Mm -hmm. And... And so Tom got to work, and he took the material that I had written. He made it so much better. He just is Tom Stoppard. That's why. Mm -hmm. And 
that was it. Suddenly we had a script and off we went. <laughs> now, how does one, you know, often I know at studios they want, all right, give me your one sentence. Give me your log line or your, how the hell do you describe what Brazil is in a sentence? Badly is how you do it. That's how I did. I mean, I couldn't really do it. It was because I was deemed to be an A-list director, and and this project that A-list director wanted to do, we didn't understand it. But he was an A-list right. director. You must get it. It's yeah. kind of like that. And Arnon Melson was at the height of his uh, ability to yes. con people. <laughs> He's, Arnon's brilliant. Yeah. And so it's this combination of all of this. And we got Tom Stoppard. So these are all things that are saying, yeah, how can you say no right. to this? Right. Now, one it. other thing that I'm sure came up uh, as a question. I know you guys were, the movie came out in 85, but you're working on it in 84, which is not a an insignificant year. <laughs> um, what was the title originally and why did it become what it became? It was originally 1984 and a half. It was because Fellini's Eight and a Half was one of my most important films yes. ever. So 1984 and a half seemed like a cute thing. But then Michael Radford managed to get quicker than we did. And he was shooting in the same locations we were using. But his film got out before and it was right. 1984. So you can't use <laughs> that, that again. It. Right, right, right. <laughs> Another thing for people that are just always blown away by your visual nuances of your movies. In this case, obviously, there's always a lot of things. But one thing that was interesting to read was that Paths of Glory was a big one, especially with these tracking shots at the beginning of the movie. Of yep. all movies, I mean, how did Paths of Glory? But that was, Paths of Glory was one of those movies that just changed my view of what movies can or cannot be. It was, I remember, I was like 14 years old. It was in the middle of the San Fernando Valley, and it was a Saturday morning matinee time where all the parents had dumped their kids. <laughs> and I was in there, and Paths of Glory came on, and I just was blown away by it. And it was the first time I was really aware of the camera doing things, its own dance. And so that became the tracking shots through the Ministry of Information with all the Clark's pool. And as simple as that, and there's... If you put Paths of Glory next to um, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, yeah. now we're getting close to the kind of movie yeah. I wanted to make. Yeah. German Expressionism was very important to me. Totally. Well, I think we, at this point, we would be remiss to not bring up a guy who you've collaborated with, I think, as many times as anyone. This spanning 1985 with Brazil through this most recent film, and a guy who's having a pretty great year overall, Jonathan Price. <laughs> How did you guys find each other? Well, it was very funny. I... Found, I met Jonathan. It was a some screening of a film, and he had just done comedians, and it was play. And then it was on television, and I was just blown away how terrifying and funny, and uh, it just is a great piece of work. And Jonathan was brilliant in it, and I just had me sitting behind him in a, in the cinema, and I said hello, <laughs> and that was it. Now I had uh, done screen tests with various people. Uh, I won't give names, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but who were more appropriate for the part as written. Mm -hmm. And and I suddenly thought, Jonathan, and he had just played Martin Luther in a film. He had put on weight. He had shaved his head with a tonsure. And 
I did a screen test with him, and my wife, Maggie, who had done the makeup on several of my films, she had one of Eric Idle's blonde wigs, and we stuck it on Jonathan's head. I did a screen test with him, and he was utterly brilliant. Of course, I showed it to Arden Milshon, my producer, and he said, you must be joking. He's not good. <laughs> and I said, it's either Jonathan or Novi. That's it. And that was it. And you guys have had quite a quite a run. I think uh, this was the fourth this year with with uh, yep. documentary. So the one thing that I think I, I, it literally has been turned into a book by Jack Matthews, formerly of the LA Times, was the drama that then ensued behind the scenes. And people may not appreciate the the back <laughs> the level of back and forth. I mean, there was some stuff where. I think you yourself recognize we got to regroup to keep this under budget and everything. And you put a pause on things in the middle for a few weeks and fine. But then when it was done, you and Universal at that point, Sid Sheinberg and Lou Wasserman basically had a, I don't know, cold war. Is that a fair way to put it? I think it's probably pretty cold. Yeah. (laughs) So can you share, I mean, just the extent of what of what, what it was about and how you ended up extricating yourself from the situation. Well, basically, I remember being in the screening room, in the projection booth in the screening room at Universal when we showed it for the first time. To, and all I remember is the lights came up at the end of it. The back of all the executives' necks, the muscles were just <laughs> knotted. You could see they hated what they had seen. <laughs> of course, afterwards, they all smiled and pretended, oh, it was really interesting. And then it became very clear in meetings with Sid Sheinberg that this had to be changed. It had, it had to have a happy ending. It had all sorts of things. I said, wait a minute. We had the script. You agreed to the script. That's what I shot. This is why people like De Niro are in the film, because we were telling that story, not the story you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it became... A moment where I even went and showed it to Steven Spielberg that night after the meeting with Sid, because Sid was is claimed he's the guy that discovered Spielberg. Right. So I showed it to Steven, and basically the argument was they were saying it's too long. At the end of the screening, just me and Steven sitting mm-hmm. at uh, Amblin, and I said, "Do you think it's too long?" And he started to look at his watch. I covered his watch, and he said, "I said, yeah, how long is it?" He said, no, "It's not too long. Maybe two hours." No, it's two hours and seventeen minutes, Stephen. Mm-hmm. And so I had, I thought Stephen on my side. He at least said, "This is an amazing film," mm-hmm. and but the battle then started on, and Universal were not going to release the film. We. Again, Arden was going to get lawyers. We're going to. T- I said, they'll win. They've got more yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. They've got all the time. They don't have to release the film, and they've got the lawyers. And so I said, no, we've got to do it in a different way. And I took out this ad in Variety, which is normal. Those pages I just covered of how many millions of right, films made right. in the last ten minutes, and it was an empty page except for a black border like a funeral announcement. And there, in the middle, typewritten, a very just personal note: "Dear Sid Sheinberg, when are you going to release my film, Brazil?" Signed Terry Gilliam. And the shit hit the fan right. at that point. You don't do that. No, this no, is not the way no, Hollywood operates. Right. And so it then became this battle that. We were trying to get it out. We even said any legitimate journalist, we would buy a bus ticket for them to go watch it in Tijuana <laughs> because they uh, there was a complete embargo on us showing it in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't even get it, show it to a PR company to try to get some support. Right. So luckily, there was. I was out here and 
I was asked to come out to do with Leonard Matlin. Oh yeah, uh, Matlin, yeah, yeah. A US, go, go to USC yeah. and do just uh, an evening uh, talking about my films and everything to the students. And I brought the whole film out with me. And I said, I just need some audiovisual aids. <laughs> and my lawyer was on the phone to the lawyer at, at Brazil trying to get sort out a problem. Because when I said to the uh, projectionist at the USA Film School, I want to show this, he said, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to show this thing because, because they're funded by the studios, basically. Right. And my lawyer was on the phone and he had done a deal with the universal lawyer whose name was Mr. Middleman, which I thought was <laughs> perfect, unbelievable. Right. And and they said that, yes, I could show an excerpt of the film, which I was going to show everything yeah. but the last 30 seconds of, <laughs> of the credit sequence. That's an excerpt. Yeah. Um, but what was interesting, and I got this message, and the dean would not take the telephone call from Mr. Middleman from Universal saying it's okay. Nobody, they didn't want oh to do God. anything. So I'm in front of all these students and saying, come on, start. And I got the students to bang on the dean's <laughs> door saying, take the call, right. take the call. Right. And of course, it never got shown. But in the course of doing that, there were people from the L.A. critics in the audience just out of curiosity. Yeah. And at Leonard Malton's thing. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. And they now knew there was something going on. Yeah. And they, amongst the group, they started showing it in private homes in, in yeah, yeah, yeah. L.A. And they discovered in their bylaws that nothing said that the film actually had to be released in the cinema to qualify. Oh, my gosh. And so now it comes to November. And I think it's November. And... All of Universal are in New York for the opening of Out of Africa, yes. the big film of the year, yeah, the big yeah, event. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all there with their black ties on at dinner, and suddenly they get this notification from the L.A. critics, best picture Brazil, best director TGLA, best screenplay Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> so now they got to put it out, right? And what they did, they put it out in New York and a couple other big cities. They didn't even have a poster. They had a Xerox <laughs> copy of what the art might have been like. It went out in per seat, per or cinema. It did more business than anything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. So they oh, we made a big mistake. It's a big hit, <laughs> which they then released it wide across the country with no buildup. Right. Nobody knew anything about it. I mean, because one of the things that I had done to help promote it was I went on Good Morning America, mm -hmm. and this is where De Niro was a great champ because yeah. he normally didn't promote his films. Right, right. And the idea of an interview with Robbie De Niro was too exciting for them. Yeah. So Bobby came on and I came on with him, and Maria Shriver was running the program. And she does the interview with Bobby, and Bobby is saying yes, <laughs> no. That's what he does, yeah. That's it. Gave nothing. Right. So out of desperation, she turns to me and says, Terry, uh, I hear you have a problem with the studio. And I say, no, me? I don't have a problem with the studio. I have a problem with one man. His name is Sid Scheinberg. And I pulled out an 8 by 10 black and white glossy of him and ran up to the camera holding it up in front of millions of people. Oh, my God. So when... Well, you get in, the, in this kind of situation, Jack Matthew would play this whole war between Sid right. and I right. because I'm just playing around. Sid is trying to be corporate and responsible. Right. So he says really dull things, and I say something clever Colorful, and funny, yeah, right. and on this goes. Oh, my God. <laughs> and in the end, we should just remind people, 
your first Oscar nomination, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Art Direction as well nomination. It's obviously today considered one of the greats. And last thing about that that I just want to mention, some people talk about it having the film having a sad ending. You have said absolutely not, and I loved your reasoning. Can you share it with listeners? If you're living in a world as crazed as the world of Brazil, going mad is quite a happy thing. (laughs) At least Sam is happy in his own mind. To the rest of the world, he's a lunatic. Yes. But who cares if you're happy in yourself? Yes, exactly. (laughs) So, all right, now that was 85 88 is the next one, Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And you have said that this was your Magnificent Amberson. So <laughs> just to remind people, Orson Welles has Citizen Kane, pisses everybody off, but it's a big, you know, great masterpiece. And then they screwed him on the next one. Yep. So what here, you know, the way it's been portrayed, it's a huge budget for those time, for those days, 23 million, I think. It ends up going very over budget and then... Columbia was being sold at the time to Sony, I think. You have said they kind of just dumped the movie. They, of course, blamed the movie. So what actually happened here? Well, we were shooting in Italy, in Cinecita, and the producer I had was a very interesting guy whose great role models in life were Alexander the Great and Napoleon and Dino De Laurentiis. <laughs> and he, we raised out of Colombia $23.5 million. And he got the first accountant in to look at the, 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 the screenplay and do a budget, and it was $60 billion. And he fired him. And then he got another one who came in at 50 fired him. We eventually, after several accountants later, got down to 23 and a half. Mm-hmm. Now, things started going wrong fairly early on in the production because what you don't do in Italy, in Rome, say this is the biggest movie ever made in Rome after Cleopatra, because in Rome, people have beautiful houses, thanks to the, their working yes. on Cleopatra. <laughs> it was a great boondoggle, is right, what it was. Right, right. And suddenly, we're in the same situation, this big budget film, and the production, it was just being ripped off madly. Every day, I was running around trying to keep it going. Anyway, the shoot, six weeks into the shoot, they looked at the budget and said they predicted we were going to be about two or three million over. Then it was getting to be more. Each day, it was more. And nothing was changing because I storyboarded the whole film. It was very detailed. So there were no hidden things. It was just the chaotic nature of the production. And so they, actually six weeks, they pulled the plug. It's over. And basically, they said the Baron cannot go to the moon. Now, admittedly, at that point, the moon, the king of the moon was Sean Connery. And there were... 2,000 people on the moon who all lost their heads at different points. Mm-hmm. It was my Cecil B. DeMille moment. Yes, yes. And they said, you can't go to the moon. And I said, well, we've stopped, and I will make sure we go to the moon. But, yes, we won't have 2,000, and we won't have Sean Connery. And I just could, took three zeros away. Right. It was two people on the right. moon. <laughs> and there was no point of having Sean King of only two right, people. Right, 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 right. And, and Robin came in to fill that gap. And it was breathtaking. So we started up again. But what had happened in the two weeks we had stopped production, I said, you've got to keep the art department working because we were behind on sets. Mm-hmm. Of course, they didn't. So we started up again, and we're still behind. In the end... I have no idea what the film costs. Nobody has come forward with a real yeah, number. Yeah. It was one of those things where it just goes crazy. The studio at the 
we get the film done and the studio now is changing hands, a new set of people. So the old regime, in all of these moments, the old regime's films must look as bad as right, possible right, right. so that the new regime's film look right. more successful. <laughs> and I, I was, it was the one time I did a compromise. The film was two hours and five minutes long. And Don Steele, who was head of production, said, if you'll cut it down to two hours, we will be behind the thing mm-hmm. totally. And I did. I cut five minutes out. It hasn't changed the film. Nothing essential was lost. But there was no... The quid pro quo yes. did not happen. <laughs> yes. And the new regime, actually, they only made 117 prints of the film. Uh, this is when 2000 yeah, is the number right. three. This, they dumped it, basically, and that's what happened. You know, understandably, having poured yourself into this movie and then to have that happen to it, it's been described that you sort of were, were in a bit of a funk, a little bit of a depression after that. And then a couple of things changed. You signed with CAA. You, I think, at their urging, are open to looking at other people's scripts for the first time. And then we come to The Fisher King. And so here's one that was so successful, Oscar winning for Mercedes Rule, a bunch of other nominations, made money, people love it. And your reaction, of course, quote, the problem with The Fisher King was that it was successful. It made me a commodity in Hollywood, close quote. So why would that be a bad thing moving (laughs) forward? (laughs) I suppose because I my biggest concern about Hollywood was that I would lose control of what I was doing. I really can only do things that I ultimately have control. I don't know how to appease studio executives. I don't know how to do any of that. And I always argue that my mistakes are more interesting than studio executives' mistakes. Yes. That's all. <laughs> uh, and But I was so depressed. This, I, this script turned up. And I read it, and I couldn't believe how good the writing was and how much I loved the characters. And it was Richard LeGravenez's very first script. He wrote it on spec. And there it was. And and my two producers were women. So people going on about women in films, they have been around doing great things for years. And so... All of this is going on, and and I was basically the bait to get Robin Williams <laughs> in. I was just the worm on the end of the hook. Right. <laughs> and so we get Robin in, and I just, for me, doing it was a joy because it wasn't full of special effects. It was me working for the first time with just good actors. But you've said that, I guess, the the result, though, is that after that, you've, got, you've had this success now with this, and rather than in this case, allowing you to now do what you're passionate about, you wind up in development hell for ahead of the next one, which ends up being four years later, but another, a very good one, 12 Monkeys, where people look at that cast and they're like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem, it looks on paper like a more of a Hollywood movie than people would normally think from you when you've got Bruce Willis, Brad Brad Pitt. Pitt, who was just blowing up. And yet there's clearly, you know, it comes from an experimental Film was the inspiration in this case, and you certainly, you know, have your stamps on it with the time travel and all of that. But what do you make of that when people say we think that this this doesn't seem like you? Well, I don't understand that, really, to be honest, because the script was written by David and John Peebles. David had written Unforgiven, which I thought was a brilliant script. And the script turned up, the, the studio had paid a million dollars, and nobody knew how to direct it. And I got that script, and I said, this is fantastic. I'm happy to take on things that nobody else knows how to do. Mm-hmm. 
And the trick was, yes, Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt, except I cast them in the opposite parts they should be normally playing. Bruce's motor mouth, I put him almost not not speaking. Brad is not a motor mouth, and suddenly he's got to be a motor mouth. And so... All of that is there. And then I got Madeline Stowe, who was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And we sit, and it was a great shoot because, again, with the two stars, and my trick always is if I go into a movie, I always am thinking out who's going to be in the foxhole with me at mm-hmm. the end of it because that's when you're most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You finish shooting, and now all the nervous Nellies <laughs> of the studios come in. And my feeling is always if I've got, like in the case of Fisher King, if Robin and Jeff and I are in the foxhole, they can't touch us. Right. Same with Brad, right. Bruce, and me. And they happened in both films. They couldn't touch it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the films both went out. And those are the two biggest successes, I think, of my career. That's amazing. Yeah, and, yeah. and 12 Monkeys went huge. Yeah. And again, it's one of those weird things because they released it on December 27th. I thought, oh, this is wrong because I everybody's playing with their Christmas presents. (laughs) But it was a smart move because pre-Christmas, all the big films were coming out, Malcolm X, and I can't remember all the others, and it was a bloodbath. They all killed each other. And so the exhibitors are saying, wait, none of this is working. And along comes a Brad and Bruce movie. Bingo, off we went. And Brad ended up with an Oscar nomination. Yep. (laughs) uh, And another for costume design for the film. But um, as as we just keep plugging along this uh, amazing story here, 1998, three years later, Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas, which... Everyone had written off as unfilmable Hunter S. Thompson's memoir. Just how are you going to do this? So it seems like you have, you know, people have described you as an, a, a, a quirky, in a, in a loving way, quirky, eccentric guy. So is Johnny Depp. And uh, it seems like in this case, that was a, a good guy to have in the be in the foxhole with. It was what was interesting about that film. I, I had been approached over the years to try to do it. I didn't know how to do it. And... Then I got this call, and it was we've got the uh, we've got Johnny Depp and Benito del Toro. We've got a script, uh, and I said, "Well, I better look at the script." And Alex Cox and his girlfriend had written it, and Tony Gazzoni and I didn't like it, so we rewrote the script in eight days. Oh wow! Yeah, and then we went our separate ways, and then called each other a day later, saying, "It's not very good, is it? What we just done?" <laughs> So we spent two more days and we fixed it all. And then we just went to work. And Johnny and Benicio were, I mean, I wanted to work with Johnny for a long time. Mm -hmm. And Benicio was a new face after... uh, Usual suspect. Yeah, usual suspect. And we went to work and we just had a ball. We shot very fast. I said, we're we're sharks. We have to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. And there's no reshoots. You just do it. Yeah. And we just created a really exciting energy, yeah. and both of them were on fire. Yeah, yeah. And I just had to look at it just a few couple months ago because they were re-releasing a cleaned-up version oh, yeah. in, in, in England. And I haven't watched it since I made it. And it was like I was watching a film. This is brilliant. Yeah. Who made it? <laughs> it really felt like that for me, which is great. Well, so that being the case, and it was very liked even you know immediately, why was it seven years before, you know, your next two, which Brothers Grimm and Tideland, both 2005, 
why were you given, was it, it wasn't because of fear and loathing. It was because of complications with those next two, right? No, it was, it was Don Quixote. I went uh, and Johnny and I set to work to do Don Quixote. That's when it started. Yeah. And, and by, so what, I mean, the dates of uh, 12 Monkeys are 1990 or fear and loathing is 1998. Yeah. So 2000, I go to shoot Don Quixote with Johnny Depp and Jean Rochefort five days into it. And it's over the disaster that occurred, the flooding and everything. So, that was adding up a lot of time. Yes. And that took a lot out of me when of that course, happened. Of course. And so it's a while before we get going again. <laughs> and Right. And so then, uh, you know, there were those two in 2005. And I think was Brothers Grimm the first time you crossed paths with Heath Ledger? It was indeed, because my cinematographer, Nicola Pecorini, was working on a film in Rome called The Sin Eater. I, I think it was a different name by the time I got here. And he called me and said, there's this young actor, Heath Ledger. He's better than Johnny. This kid is so brilliant. you got to work with him, Terry. And so we, we had written the um, Brothers Grimm script, and Heath turned up in L.A., and I met him, and I was just, I mean, just this guy's wonderful. Yeah. And, and then Matt Damon, who I always wanted to work with. Yeah. And we grabbed the two of them, and we're off and yeah. running. Yeah. We're at Brothers Grimm. Uh, unfortunately, there was one other element to the thing that, Took the joy out of it. And the last name is Weinstein. I was going to say. <laughs> but predominantly in this case, it was Brother Bob, right? It was less there's hard. There's no, no predominant, no, ultimately. No, the, the brothers are a twin-headed yes. monster. But Bob was the actual producer, but yeah. Harvey had to be involved. Yes. And I had always... I had met Harvey several times. He had wanted to work with me on things, and I had avoided him because I just know who he is, and I know who I am, and I just, it's going to be a bad marriage. <laughs> and what happened, I had, there's, we're ready to go. The whole crew is together. We're in Prague. We're going on a technical scout, and the an MGM who had been putting up the money suddenly pulled out. So, and then the Weinsteins are like vultures on the telegraph pole <laughs> looking for roadkill. And we were roadkill. Right. And the only way we could keep the thing going was to go with them. And we did. And then I was right for not wanting to work well, with Well, we should just say, I, mean, if you, I believe this is all correct. Bob says, you basically fires your cinematographer, nixes the idea of Samantha Morton playing the lead, yeah. n- rejects a prosthetic nose for Matt Damon, just... Really Everything. stepped yeah. all over, yeah. It's, um, it's all about control. Yeah. Control, control. And the Weinsteins want to be filmmakers. They want to be the director. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. They're great producers. Yeah. But and they may and they're less great other things. Yes. <laughs> For <laughs> sure. Great. Well, the Heath Ledger thread continues, of course, but very sadly ends with the next one, Imaginarium with Dr. Parnassus, which was four years later. And this is the one where even before people necessarily knew about your Don Quixote ordeal, they look at this and they say, you know, in the middle of production, tragically, you lose your leading man, Heath Ledger. Your producer, one of your producers dies a week after shooting reps. You get hit by a car and have your back broken during post. At a certain point, you must have started to wonder if if you're cursed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just thought I was very lucky. I was the one that didn't die. You could argue. It's just, no, it was was terrible because shooting was, it started so well. And Heath was just breathtakingly good. And then he dies in the middle of it. And I 
for me, it was over. I just did not want to finish the film. But I surround myself with people like my daughter, Amy, and Nicola, who will not listen to me. <laughs> and they said, you've got to make this movie, if nothing else, for Heath. Mm -hmm. I said, I can't. I couldn't think of a single actor who could replace him yeah. as far as I was concerned. And then... Out of desperation, I came, okay, three actors. Yeah, it's not going to be a single actor, yeah. Um, Johnny Depp, Jude Law, Colin Farrell. Yeah. It made it uh, yeah. more interesting in a way. Not more interesting yeah, than, I, you know, I, obviously. I yeah. I mean, I still would like to have seen the film that Heath and I set out to make. But the film we made, I'm so happy with it. And I think what was wonderful is Johnny, Colin, and Jude coming in. They worked for nothing because they were all friends of Heath. And to see that kind of respect and love is a rare thing in Hollywood. They talk about all yes. these things, but you never see <laughs> yes. it in, in the flesh. And that's what happened there. Absolutely. So in that sense, it was a wonderful experience, despite the horror, yes. the breathtaking horror of Heath's dying. And uh, art direction and costume design Oscar nominations there, too. It's... Yeah. Uh, Kind of nice to see that your visuals, which are always unbelievable, got recognized. And then I guess at the end of that is when you decided, for reasons that I'll leave to you to share, time to go back to Quixote, <laughs> right? <laughs> what was, I mean, you, are you, a, what do they say, a glutton for punishment, right? Because at the, I guess this is a good place to, because, yeah. you know, for people who haven't seen Lost in La Mancha, which was a documentary that came out in 2002, capturing the crap you'd already dealt with on this movie. Let's just recap, if we can, some of the key points. I mean, literally from the first week. Well, we get out there. Jean Rochefort, who's playing Don Quixote, spoke only French. He spent seven months learning English to play the part. We go to work, and within no time at all, everything starts falling apart. It ultimately... There were planes flying overhead. It was NATO because it was during the Serbian-Kosovo yes. uh, experience. And suddenly this place, they had never had planes overhead. We're suddenly flying over doing uh, training. And that started going. And then the weather comes in and we had this shock flood, storm flood that just wiped the set out. All our equipment was covered in mud. Ah, and then we start up again a couple of days later, and Jean Rochefort cannot sit on the horse. Something has gone wrong with his nether regions. And he was taken off in a helicopter, flown to Paris for treatment, and never came back. And five days after starting, it was finished. Mm -hmm. It was gone. And that takes a little bit out of you. Of course, of <laughs> but course. it made a good documentary. Yeah, right. You helped those guys. Yeah. And and so when you then picked it up years later after Parnassus, there was sort of a realization that probably both for creative and financial reasons, it makes sense to have a contemporary set yeah. script in large part. Well, we actually, the, the, the Johnny Depp version, the character was a modern advertising guy. So there always okay. was okay. a contemporary guy in it because my concern with Coyote is it takes place at the beginning of the 17th century. And yet he's talking about 12th and 13th century knighthood. And I just didn't, didn't think a modern audience would be able to understand the difference in the costumes. Yes. So yeah. let's have a contemporary guy. And the Johnny version was more like Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Guy gets bonked on the head, ends up yes. in the 17th century. 
Well, somewhere along the line, Tony Grizzoni and I added a backstory to the character. And so ultimately, it's a commercials director who, I think commercials director, I know so many who started in films and then went the easy road, taking the money, (laughs) doing commercials, selling dog food and toilet paper. And it's like... And so these guys must be punished, I felt. But we had him, it was so good how he had made a film when he'd come out of film school. He'd gone to a little Spanish village, got the locals to play Quixote, Dulcinea, all the characters. And then he comes back 10 years later thinking it's going to be wonderful. And he's confused many lives. Dulcinea, the young girl who's 15, goes off to be a movie star and ends up basically being a tart, yeah. a prostitute. <laughs> uh, and the guy, the little uh, shoemaker who was playing Don Quixote, has gone mad. He still thinks he's the yeah. guy. <laughs> and so now we've got a much more interesting story. Uh, oh, and it's, it's really more more about the dangers of filmmaking. <laughs> and so in terms of the guys who, who were with you when you finally got across the finish line after something like 25 years, it ended up being Adam Driver and, of course, your old man, Jonathan Price. Now, what's interesting, Adam Driver was not somebody who was particularly on your radar before this, right? Not at all. So how did did he end up being the guy? Again, my daughter does these things. I mean, I had seen Star Wars with him in his first Kylo Ren edition. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And, okay, fine. It was interesting, but nothing to do with what I was doing. And and my daughter Amy, he was in town doing some Star Wars work, and and she said, "You just got to meet him." I'd never seen girls. I I, I knew nothing about him except for that bit of Kylo yeah. Ren, which meant he was bankable. Yes. So let's meet. And I we set up a, a little lunch in a pub in London. I met him, and he was completely unlike what I ever I'd thought about the character. And there was. He wasn't like an actor. There's something so real about Adam, mm-hmm. genuine. And when he told me about 9-11, when it occurred, and he joined the Marines to go and defend the country, that's a wonderfully naive, innocent thing. And I thought, this is an extraordinary guy. Mm-hmm. And I just like the fact that I've got a character who doesn't look like a leading man. Mm-hmm. And, and he is even better than I thought because mm-hmm. he is so serious about his work mm-hmm. and he's fearless mm-hmm. and, and the character in the film starts he is a, he's an asshole he's a really <laughs> cynical jaded commercials director mm-hmm. and by the end he's beautiful he's just transformed and the range is incredible and he does it brilliantly and every day working with Adam was a constant surprise yeah, yeah. there's he just, he's, I think he's the best reactor I've ever worked with. Because yeah. you throw Jonathan Price in his face, being outrageous yes. as Coyote. You throw Stellan Skarsgård in his face, right. being dangerous and right. a tough boss. Adam deals with it. He's wonderful. And I think, to be quite honest, I think this is, this is a performance that shows more of his range than anything else he's got out this year. He's got a lot to show. Oh, my God. Marriage story. The report, report, Star Wars coming yep. up, and this. It's quite amazing. And he's, I don't know how he's got time to do live a life anymore. <laughs> yeah, he was on Broadway too earlier I this know. year. Amazing. So, you know, in our last two minutes, let's say, I just have a couple of last things I want to bang out here. How gratifying was it after this, the impossible dream, talk about, to have it finally happen uh, and then go to Cannes, 
have it premiere there. And we should say the reason it finally happened, I think this is just a, a very cute story also. Where did the last bit of money come from? This is, again, my daughter Amy came to it because we, over all these years, and with always with bigger names, Robert Duvall was in there, Owen Ewan McGregor, John Hurt, all of them, we could ever, never get beyond $12.5 million in the marketplace. Yeah. I knew the budget was closer to 16. Yeah. And at the last minute, my daughter met this lady who had come into a lot of money late in life, who had been a, a very bohemian, she was a flamingo dancer, and she had a daughter by a one-night stand and ended up, after, again, persistent years to prove that this man was the father, he went and died. Mm -hmm. And it went on, and she eventually got the body exhumed, mm -hmm. and it proved he was the father. He just happened to be the heir to a lot of money. Wow. Wow. And so suddenly she came into this money, and she had seen Lost in the Monster. She knew how long I had tried to make this a possibility, and she gave us the money we needed. To finish it. It was and fairy what was tale. the one thing she wanted? Uh, to, she wanted to <laughs> dance. She wanted to walk up the red carpet in Cannes. And she did. You and in fact, when we got on the red carpet, I grabbed her and we danced on That's the red great. carpet in Cannes. And that night, though, I mean, for you, it's great for her, her dream realized. But I mean, for you, movie finally gets made, yeah. finally premieres. And then apparently a record 20-minute standing ovation. That's what they tell me. I mean, how record. does that feel? And then how do you... Yeah, it makes what's, you feel foolish is what yeah. it does. What do you do standing there? And I, even then, I can't stop thinking, is that applause for the film or is it applause for my endurance? <laughs> and I don't know. Maybe it's both things, but it was extraordinary. Yeah. And so we have a happy ending, but yeah. that's not the end. Well, and, and right, and for you, the, does it does is it weird to not have that hanging over you anymore? You can you does it feel like a loads off your shoulders or what? Well, I've lost a, a longtime friend. Yeah, it was yeah. always there, and I have no idea what I'm doing next. I have nothing up there. It's just Coyote was always waiting in the wings whenever I finished another film. He was always there, and now he's not there, and it's a very funny time. I've never felt quite as alone as I do at the yes. moment. Last question is this. You know, if there's one, I don't know if thread through your films or theme or, or what I would call it, but it seems to be that you are fascinated with imagination and what the, the line blurring between what's real and what's imagined and the value as, as with Brazil. Maybe it's better to live in the imagined world or all of this. Can you just close this out by talking about why imagination is important? Well, I hate the fact that the media, everything around us says the world is this big, which is small and limited. And I don't think that's true. The world is as big as you want it to be if you're willing to imagine it. And, and I think it's so hard living at a time where the media is so pressing down on us. You cannot escape the news or whatever, or you're on Facebook. You're just to be silent and just have your own thoughts is so hard. And so I just keep pushing this line that if you can imagine a better or more interesting world, it's the only chance it'll ever exist. Without imagining it, it will never happen. So imagine more, ladies and gentlemen. Don't believe what they tell you. It's The world is bigger, better, more surprising than anything you're told daily. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. 
We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on your podcast app of choice and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out all of the other shows that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network. Rebecca Ford and Rebecca Sons' Hollywood Remixed, Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Josh Wiggler's Series Regular, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for listening.